Hey, thanks so much for listening to Dissident Orthodoxy. We've got a great conversation on the way. A couple of things. If you like the show, you can support us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating and review. You can support us by telling a friend, sharing on social media, or you can support us for as little as a buck a month on patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening to Dissident Orthodoxy. I'm Casey Hobbs. Today I'm joined by Stephen Kinzer. He is the author of nine books, including The True Flag, The Brothers, Overthrow, and The Shah's Men. He's an award-winning foreign correspondent, uh, served with the New York Times as bureau chief in Nicaragua, Germany, and Turkey. And he is now the senior fellow at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University. And he writes all over the place, uh, and we'll get uh, you in touch with more of his work. Uh, today, we are going to talk about his 2019 book called Poisoner in Chief, Stanley Gottlieb and the CIA's Search for Mind Control. It's going to be a fun conversation, I think. So, Stephen, thank you so much for joining uh, me on the podcast today. Good to be with you. It's a fascinating subject. Absolutely. So, set the scene. Um, this is this is MK Ultra. Um, which I, I think has a really great reputation in um, kind of underground conspiratorial circles. Um, and this is obviously the kind of setting the record straight. I think there's a lot of uh, great content in there. Uh, but set the scene for for why mind control, like just kind of the paranoia of, of the time, especially for those of us that were born um, maybe at the very, very end of the Cold War or listeners that were born afterwards? The intensity of paranoia around uh, America in the early Cold War is so immense that it's really difficult, even for people like me, I teach about it all the time and I tell students, you have to put yourself back in it and I try to describe it. But sometimes I think even I can't put myself back there. No, there really was the feeling that uh, the Red Army could charge into Germany and get to the English Channel in 24 hours, or that missiles would be launched from the Soviet Union and wipe out American cities. Newspapers were printing little clocks with how many minutes it was going to take, like it would be 82 minutes, and it would be 72, and then it would be 61 minutes for a missile mm-hmm. to get to the United States. People were required to participate in civil defense drills, go off the streets, go into basements. You were supposed to dig civil defense uh, bomb shelters in your basements. Um, School children were taught to, if in case of an atomic attack, be sure to hide under your desk and put your notebook on your head. Uh, So it absorbed everything. Uh, Now, in this climate, um, it seemed that the two, at least it seemed to the CIA and the American security establishment, and because of their conviction, this opinion spread throughout all America, that the world was divided between two great camps and they were essentially in a death struggle in which one would win and the other would be wiped out. The American narrative was that a a communist victory over freedom would not only mean uh, the end of freedom in the United States, but it would mean essentially the end of the possibility of any meaningful life anywhere on earth. Hmm. This is what we convinced ourselves we were up against. It's full apocalypse, yeah. Absolutely. It's it's hard to imagine even now. So in this climate, the CIA was looking everywhere at threats. And in the early 1950s, 
based on a couple of its analyses, which turned out to be wrong, the CIA concluded that the Soviet Union and China, that is communism, uh, was on the brink of solving an immense eternal human challenge, which was how to control other people's minds. This electrified the CIA because obviously if you could find a way to control other people's minds, the prize would be nothing less than global mastery. Sure. So mistakenly convinced that others were working on this, which played right into their paranoid expectations, the CIA then began what it was able to describe as a kind of a defensive program or a <laughs> counter program to find the secrets of mind control. It became known as MK Ultra because it was such an ultra project. If you could succeed with this, you wouldn't need to succeed in any others. So my book, Poisoner in Chief, is the first one that tries to put together whatever we can find about what MKUltra was. And it's at the same time a biography for the first time of this bizarre chemist, Sidney Gottlieb, who ran MKUltra, who had what amounted to a license to kill granted by the US government and who I've come to believe was probably the most powerful unknown American of the 20th century. So putting all that together into Poisoner in Chief has been uh, quite a story. And I can tell you this, I've written a number of books, as you pointed out. During the process of researching and writing those books, I've learned a lot of things that surprised me and they might've shocked some people, but this is the first time I've been shocked. I still cannot wrap my mind around the fact that there was such a government program as MKUltra and there was such a person as Sidney Gottlieb. Yeah, no, yeah, so t I don't know, um, I guess talk first about MKUltra and kind of weave in, weave that in. Um, I, I, the part of me reaching out to you was a conversation I had with my wife and um, I guess I'm prone to kind of hearing things that, that she doesn't and, and I said, this MK Ultra program, I mean, um, you know, it was a real thing, and you know, it was at least an attempt, like you said, to to do mind control. Um, and even like we've had this ongoing conversation about like the JFK assassination, um, the moon moon landing. I mean, uh, it's it's kind of an, an ongoing thing, but um, but yeah, I I was uh, really taken aback, even having been someone that's heard of this and kind of has a concept, um, the the lengths and, and, and having no um, preconception of American innocence um, when it comes to, to CIA or, or any military operation um, going all the way back. But, but like I said, shocking, uh, shocking um, information so, that, you, that you provide on MKUltra, yeah, yeah. Sidney Gottlieb carried out what amounted to the most intense and extreme experiments on human beings that have ever been conducted by any officer or agency of the US government. So he was hired in 1951 to come to the CIA, consolidate scattered mind control projects and come up with an idea of what MKUltra could be. He was hardly supervised at all. 
the reason it's, it's actually the opposite of what you'd expect. If you have an employee who's doing very dangerous and awful things, you want to watch that person closely. Sure. At the CIA, it's the opposite. Uh, at the CIA and in other secret services, the code is that ignorance can be an asset. You, sure. you don't want to know everything. The CIA officers at the top, including Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA, wanted to be sure that later on they and their successors would be able to say, we didn't know anything about this. And the way they could guarantee that is to tell Godly, don't tell us anything about it. So they knew that he was doing things that were very bloody and that people were probably being experimented to death. And that's exactly why they didn't want to know anything about it. So what did Gottlieb do? First of all, he decided as a good scientist uh, that if you wanted to find a way to put a new mind into somebody's brain, the first thing you had to do is find a way to destroy the mind that was in there. So he set out finding to try to find techniques that would destroy a human mind and a human body and a human spirit. Next scientific step that he logically took was to ask himself, as anyone would launching a new project like this, what's the state of research that exists? What, what do we already know about this so I can build on it? Well. Not so much. There have been a lot of Sherlock Holmes stories and Edgar Allan Poe stories mm -hmm. and movies like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but that's all made up. So Bob Gottlieb wanted to know which poisons really work. Uh, how long does it take different poisons to kill people? Um, but of course, he wasn't able to find that out. We can't find out that information in the United States because we don't carry out those experiments. So he asked himself, who would know that? Sure. Well, the obvious answer was, don't forget, it's only a few years after the end of World War II, the Nazi doctors who worked in the concentration camps and their Japanese counterparts, who in some cases were doing things even more gruesome than what the Nazi doctors were doing. So Godley went out and hired these guys uh, under a project called Operation Paperclip. The United States had already admitted a number of Nazi spies into the US intelligence operation and also Nazi rocket scientists into NASA. So it was just the next step to bring these dot Nazi doctors into uh, the CIA project of MKUltra and build on their knowledge. I actually found a document of a couple of them coming to Washington and giving a little secret lecture to the CIA and related uh, experts answering a question they wanted to know. It was about sarin gas, which is a very toxic poison. The question was, um, does it take the same amount of sarin to kill a baby as it does to kill an adult? Well, these guys knew and they yeah. gave the answers. And of course, anybody in the audience must have realized, at least in the back of your mind, what you have to do in order to come up with the right. answer to that question. So. Uh, when I was writing Poisoner in Chief, I went to Germany where uh, Gottlieb had the right to essentially ask the local CIA station to deliver him human beings. They were called expendables, suspected agents of the enemy or refugees that had no connections to anybody. And he would be able to experiment on them as much as he wanted and using all kinds of drugs, sensory deprivation, electroshock, all kinds of 
horrific techniques. So when I was in Germany, I found what I think may be the first CIA secret prison. It's a lovely chalet near Frankfurt, looks like a B&B. Um, the guy who owns it now is a young German businessman who's made condos there. And uh, he was very friendly and he took me into the house. He took me into the basement and he said, these storage rooms are the cells where the CIA doctors carried out experiments, which were actually just continuations of the experiments that the Nazi doctors had carried out in concentration camps only a few years earlier, just down the road. And he told me the older people who live in this neighborhood all know what happened in this house. It's not a secret anymore. And they've told me that the bodies of people who Gottlieb experimented to death were buried in forest tracts that have now been covered over with apartment blocks and uh, shopping malls. So I can't, I asked myself who in the 20th century had a permission from the US government as an agent of the US government, an employee of the US government to go to foreign countries and requisition human beings for experiments that could be deadly. Uh, and no oversight, no explanation in advance of what was the purpose of the experiment and whether it worked or not. So this is uh, a person who carried out this amazing project. And uh, I have to say, in all of my books, the uh, chapter I'm the proudest of is the footnotes. Everything in this book is real. Yeah. Everything comes from somewhere. I've put it all together and done a lot of research, but these are all facts. It is not a conspiracy theory or speculation. Now, I'm painfully aware that I've only uncovered a small fraction of what MKUltra was and what Sidney Gottlieb did. When he left the CIA in 1973, he and his boss, then CIA director Richard Helms, agreed, we, we have to destroy all the MKUltra files. For obvious they understood <laughs> this is a federal crime because uh, it's destruction of federal property. And actually, I found a note from the uh, archivist. There's a CIA archive out in Warrington, Virginia. They went out there. Gottlieb personally went out there to order the destruction of the files. And the guy said he wouldn't do it because it's a violation of law. And in his log, he writes, seven crates of documents were destroyed over my stated objections. So that was a crime, but it wasn't anything like yeah, the right. crimes that were described in those documents. So given that fact, we don't know so much about MKUltra, but I've tried to put everything that we do know into Poisoner-in-Chief. Yeah, yeah, and, and part of what you, what you cover in there is, you know, the, the seven crates, I mean, represents what, 10 years, but the fact that like the, the ignorance is, is really, the the goal of these um, these experiments and and you talk about how specific uh, the the receipt keeping um, for instance the that Gottlieb required on just random things like the blacklist or the the black site uh, houses that he set up um, in Germany and um, and in in the states um, you know needing receipts for every everything except for the drugs maybe and the uh, and the prostitutes and the prostitutes that were employed um unofficial operation midnight climax 
a CIA-sponsored bordello in San Francisco, which they founded with the purpose of protecting America from communism. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, it, and I think it really illustrates this this wild character too, because you're, I mean, just thinking about somebody like this has to be. He's such a monster. This this is just, you know, pure evil of a person. Um, but I, and I think. <laughs> uh, I don't know that we're here to argue against that, but but the the character of Gottlieb is such a fascinating one because yeah he he doesn't just walk around um, injuring helpless animals in his real life, uh, but in when he goes to work and that's what he's doing. Um, You're absolutely right. So uh, one of the fascinating first of all, whenever you write a biography, as Poisoner in Chief is more or less. Um, you're living with the person that you're writing about. And I can tell you, Sidney Gottlieb, not a very pleasant roommate. <laughs> the stories I would come across are absolutely blood curdling. Um, and as you say, um, he was the director of a project that was quite horrific. Uh, nonetheless, uh, he had this other side to his character to, to which you refer. So. He did not live in the 1950s like any other federal bureaucrat. Instead, he had a, a house, a cabin out in the countryside in Virginia. It had no running water, an outdoor toilet. Um, he got up before dawn to milk his goats. <coughs> he studied Zen Buddhism. He wrote poetry. He was involved in the community. He seemed like a loving guy in the neighborhood. He was a little bit like a proto-hippie. Mm. Um, yet, he carried out all these horrific experiments. Um, and it shows the complexity of the, the human soul. Sometimes I wondered, when he drove across the bridge over the Potomac on his way home, did he kind of, like a snake shedding his mm. skin, you know, did he kind of go through a kind of a tunnel or something in which he would leave behind a portion of himself? Mm. Um, and then go into his other identity. Uh, you need a psychologist to answer that question. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, fascinating, fascinating. I'm, I'm actually um, thinking of a new show on Apple TV um, that is called Severance. Um, if you haven't seen that, you might, you might enjoy that. Uh, <laughs> there's essentially, um, it's an office setting, but they've set up to where you can separate your mind between your real life and your work life. And so as they're getting down to the, the floor that they work on, there's, they kind of show this um, kind of paranormal switching um, of the, you know, it's a different person when they got off. And I, I was struck at reading this, just how, how much of a real life um, scenario this was, this was for Gottlieb. And like you said, at what point does he cross the bridge on the way to work and say, um, yeah, it's time to work with some expendables today. Um, so I, I asked myself, how is it possible for a person who's loving and compassionate to be such a gentle-hearted torturer, so to speak? Right. Uh, and how do you fit these two pieces together? Naturally, I, I did a lot of reflecting on this when I was writing Poisoner in Chief. Um, and I came up with one theory. Now. Uh, the wife never gave an interview, the widow, and uh, before and right after he died, uh, the mother brought the children together and made them promise never to discuss their father with anybody. So 
Uh, we don't know what they thought or mm -hmm. what they talked about at home. However, I, I have a speculation. Maybe. How does he put together the good, loving, decent Sidney Gottlieb with the horrible, essentially he was the most prolific American torturer sure. post-war era. Uh, how do you put that together? So here's one way I might spin it out. How would Gottlieb justify it to himself? Mm -hmm. And again, you have to do what you told me to do at the very beginning of the show, which is put yourself back in the era, the yeah. intense paranoia where we think we're living at the very edge of apocalypse. So he might've thought this to himself. I'm a very unorthodox person. I live a life that's pretty offbeat and I'm able to do this because I live in this wonderful country that's free and open and allows people to express themselves. There's the danger that we will be wiped out and taken over and turned into a society of automatons, which is what they thought the Soviet right. Union was, a society in which everyone must act like a robot and the possibility of independent life, such as I live, would be absolutely impossible, unthinkable. So in order to protect the right of people to live freely like I do and be kind of offbeat and shape their own lives, it's necessary for me to make the moral compromises and carry out a project which lamentably is gonna cost a lot of people to be tor tortured and killed. In fact, in one little piece of testimony that I dug up, um, he tells uh, some congressional investigators, I want you to know that this kind of work was very difficult. <laughs> I, I mean, I was thinking it was not as difficult for you as it was <laughs> for the people you were torturing. Right. <laughs> but it suggests that uh, he at least had to reflect on this sure. and so that, uh, a thought process that I just described is about the best I could come up with to explain how a person could be so warm-hearted and, and so cold-hearted. Yeah, yeah. There's another interesting, just wild subplot, I guess, in this this telling and in MK Ultra and with Gottlieb is the emergence of LSD um, and and psychedelics uh, in this whole. Um, this whole time, and yeah, I mean, as far as like creating that blank slate, um, I mean, obviously that's doing that with drugs and, and finding that LSD. And, and really it seemed like for a long time, he saw LSD as like the, that was gonna be the answer um, for this mind control. Um, so, so I guess talk about the arc of LSD and, and then, um, yeah, like the, how that got completely out of the CIA's control, which, which is a fun um, side, yeah, side it, track it, to it. It really is an amazing part of the, the Sidney Gottlieb and MKUltra uh, story. So Gottlieb as a chemist, and he was endlessly curious. He was instantly fascinated by LSD. The fact that it was so potent in such small doses uh, and it was colorless and odorless um, made it seem so attractive. Uh, so he was so, he was really the first LSD maven. Uh, by his own account, he took at least 200 LSD trips during his life. Um, so in 1953, Sidney Gottlieb persuaded the CIA to buy the entire world supply of LSD, which it did from the Sandoz Laboratory in Switzerland. 
The LSD came to the United States and it came all under Gottlieb's control. Um, now, he used this LSD in two kinds of experiments as he was trying to determine what is LSD? What could it be used for? So the first set of experiments were quite horrific. He wanted to see if uh, overdoses of LSD could be a way to destroy a mind so that then there would be a total blank and then you could move on to phase two and see if you could find a way to insert another mind in there. So I came across uh, one of the few surviving records of uh, document uh, MK Ultra experiments. And you can imagine that this must have happened in other places as well. So at the, Gottlieb liked to experiment uh, on prisoners. Naturally, they're logical population for him. They're under the control of the warden and he can offer certain emoluments. So he made a lot of deals with prison wardens and prison doctors. Uh, and one of the places where he conducted experiments through local doctors was uh, the US prison in Lexington, Kentucky. In this prison, uh, an MK Ultra experiment involved selecting seven African-American inmates, segregating them and feeding them what are described in the memo as triple or quadruple doses of LSD every day for 77 days. Now, presumably the purpose of that was to figure out whether that would destroy a human mind. And although we don't have the protocol, my guess is the answer probably is yes. You'd have to and, imagine that would not. And I began to wonder, we have no idea who those people were. There's yeah. no names attached. So did they get out? Did they ever have the slightest idea of what happened to them? It's really, when you start spinning it out, quite an awful story. Yeah. So that was one way that Gottlieb used LSD to try to um, find, uh, to use human beings to see if he could uh, overdose them. And I'm sure in that sense, it was successful. But Gottlieb also wanted to know how ordinary people would respond to LSD under clinical circumstances. So uh, he wanted to uh, have volunteers come in and take LSD, but of course the CIA doesn't have clinics. And so what happened to, what he did was, he set up a, a bogus medical foundation, which was actually a front for MKUltra. And this foundation then sent out a memo to uh, a number of hospitals and clinics across the United States, many affiliated with universities or the Veterans Administration, and told them very specifically that we have this new drug, it's called LSD, it's psychoactive, we will pay you to carry out experiments. And the experiments would mean you advertise in the newspaper for volunteers. You tell them exactly what they're going to get. You pay them with money that we will provide. And then you write up reports of how they behave. So since the financing was so generous, a number of places took advantage of this. Um, and it was fascinating to me to figure out who were among the very first people who saw those ads and said, I want to go in and try that so-called psychoactive drug. One of the very first was Allen Ginsberg, the famous poet who went on to become a great uh, Pied Piper of LSD. Yeah, he had his first LSD in a clinic that was funded by Sidney Gottlieb, although neither he nor the clinic knew this. Another guy among the first was Robert Hunter, the lyricist for The Grateful Dead, 
He loved it. He took it home. He turned on the Grateful Dead and threw them the entire deadhead world. Another guy who was among the very first volunteers was Ken Kesey, who wrote uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, great counterculture Bible. And later on, I found an interview with him in which he said that he liked it so much that he got a job in the hospital with the purpose of stealing all the LSD out of the pharmacy and turning on all his friends. So what it means is that the CIA was the conduit through which LSD leaked out into the masses. Now, I found an interview with John Lennon in which he was asked about LSD, and he said, we should always remember to thank the CIA. Now, John Lennon had never heard of Sidney Gottlieb because nobody had, mm -hmm. but if he had, he would have said, we must always remember to thank Sidney Gottlieb. And of course, the irony of all of this is that the drug that Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA thought would give them the power to control the world actually wound up fueling a generational rebellion, which was aimed at destroying everything the CIA believed in. <laughs> I love that. Um, I wonder if you if you have thoughts. Um, I want to shift it one more direction before we end. But if you have thoughts, the Michael Pollan. Um, wrote a book several years back on psychedelics and um, it's become more of a, a conversation. I know my wife is in, um, is in mental health and that's become more of a, a kind of um, crusade for some um, to, to use psychedelics in a, in a therapeutic way, not at all like um, the descriptions in this book. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about, about your thoughts um, even, um, Kind of with the reemergence re um, of of kind of a larger conversation about psychedelics. Well, I think it's highly positive. I, I really believe it's a shame that um, those uh, drugs were demonized for so long. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I there was a time when uh, uh, Dr. Albert Hoffman, the inventor, the discoverer of LSD, came to the United States, and he didn't like the way LSD was just being used for recreation all the time. As a matter of fact, I read his book, uh, LSD, My Problem Child, which was a really mm. interesting account of his uh, in encounter with LSD, how he discovered it and what it meant to him. Um, and right at the very beginning, he says he wrote, as soon as he understood what it was, the very first thing he said is, this could be very helpful in treating mental illness. Mm. This was right after he discovered it, but no one picked up on that. And one thing that uh, I... Uh, saw very clearly from Gottlieb, who had long and deep engagement with LSD, is that he never considered it in any kind of a therapeutic light hmm. or in any way that could be helpful. He only thought of it as a coercive tool sure. that could be used to further American national security interests. Um, and and uh, it's a shame, actually, that generations passed with LSD carrying this double stigma of the government uh, first being the ones that let it loose and then it becoming kind of a symbol of countercultural rebellion. But I do think it's very positive that uh, long overdue, uh, it's coming back into respectability. And uh, I, th I think it has a lot of potential, really. I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased to see this. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, the, uh, I was just amazed like the up and down 
like I said, subplot of, of LSD and psychedelics in this. Um, just, just wild. Um, Anna, I guess uh, maybe we should have ended there, but I'll go with a less positive note um, for the last kind of train of thought. Um, There's no positive. I know, about I know. That was, that was it. Like, psychedelics are good and they're, yeah. Um, but, but the, um, like the legacy, as I was reading, um, you know, talk about like, uh, kidnapping in foreign um, countries and and put into these quote unquote safe houses um, in foreign jurisdictions and I couldn't help but think of I mean what we did in Iraq you know we called it extraordinary rendition and but the CIA had all these black sites um, maybe the experimental phase wasn't like up and running but I mean the documented torture was certainly indisputable. So I'm, I'm curious even about that legacy, I guess, in the CIA and in government operations kind of around the world. So we sit today. I think this, this is probably Gottlieb's um, strongest continuing legacy. Yeah. You can draw a line. So Gottlieb's whole focus at the beginning, they used to call it a truth theorem. That's what they were looking for. That's another way of thinking of controlling people's minds. You make them say you make them tell their secrets. And Gottlieb was a pioneer in trying to find out ways to coerce information out of people. How do you build a relationship with the person you're interrogating? You make sure that you seal them off from any possibility of any escape other than through you. You become the only conduit. Now you use different techniques like temperature variations and noise and sensory deprivation. Um, he wrote a memo about this, which was part of his job. Mm -hmm. That memo, then became a basis for memos that were the, the basic training memo that was used in uh, the Phoenix program in Vietnam, which was responsible under the CIA for killing thousands of suspected enemy agents in Vietnam. Later on, a version of that memo was translated into Spanish in the 1980s and sent to police forces in Latin America which were actively torturing dissidents in pro under pro-American governments. And then another version of that same memo containing many of those same techniques was used as the basis for what the United States did in Abu Ghraib and in Guantanamo and presumably in these secret prisons. So here you can draw a line yeah. from Gottlieb all the way up to the present day. And uh, this is something that I think... Uh, would really show how some things don't change over the course of decades when you're dealing with uh, the CIA. As one of its officers famously remarked, intelligence work is not to be confused with the Boy Scouts. Yeah, I think anyone that's confusing that uh, at this point in their life should uh, read your book and <laughs> read your larger body of work that I think testifies to that. So, Speaking of large body work, um, I know you have a website uh, that you're chronicling um, many other things as well. Um, right now, as we speak in early May, uh, folks might not listen to this until August, but uh, I see that you're writing, um, even covering the Ukraine-Russia um, uh, conflict right now. But yeah, tell us about what kind of things we can find on your website. So all of my 10 books uh, are available by clicking on, and I, of course, encourage you to order them from your local independent bookstore. 
Um, I also write a bi-weekly column on world affairs for the Boston Globe. And uh, that column is in there, including some of my, and then there's some speeches that I've given about some of my various books. So um, I try to keep that updated and I actually pay someone to do it. So please make my money worthwhile and, and check it out. It's stephenkinzer.com. Uh, right now, um, you know, I'm not writing another book. Part of the reason is I'm still recovering from Poisoner-in-Chief. <laughs> this was a very intense experience. It's hard That's enough fair. to read it. Think yeah. what it was like to write it. Uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll take your word for that one. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, fascinating. And I'm grateful that, that you suffered in, in writing it. And um, it is it is very uh great book and, and folks should check it out to hear more. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for your time, Stephen. I, I really appreciate it and I hope we can speak soon again. Great to be with you. Thanks. And that's the show. Thank you so much for listening to Dissident Orthodoxy. We have some great content for you coming up soon. In the meantime, go on to Apple Podcasts, give us a rating and review, tell a friend, support us for as little as a buck a month on patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon.